I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here with the uh, many things. Uh, she is a uh, she is a uh, wonderful uh, author, and she has 16 books out. And we'll get into that in a moment. But she's uh, also uh, a subject of a documentary. She was the subject of an extended radio show before she became her own host of the Florence Weinberg Show. And uh, she, uh, an educator and so many things. And tonight she is nominated for an award in, uh, in education, in the category of education, uh, for the only journalism award that you can win on radio for Long Island. With, you know, she has a, a following here on Long Island that is, um, that, that is becoming very, very prominent. And I, I know many people that ask me each and every week about uh, uh, about Dr. Weinberg. And in fact, somebody said, I wish she would come up here one day and uh, I would just take her out to dinner. And uh, and my mother-in-law, uh, who listens all the time, the wonderful Joan Seeley, she's an educator as well. And she said, boy, I bet we'd be best friends if, if she was up here. And uh, <laughs> I think they're, they're along the same lines. But tonight we'll find out uh, uh, where she uh, where she ends up. In the uh, in the voting, and it's a prestigious award, and uh, and we wish her luck. I'll be there to accept it uh, if she uh, if she wins, but not bad for like an impromptu show on uh, on Sesame Street. But she did such a wonderful job. Without further ado, uh, Florence Weinberg, how are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, thank you very much, and excited about this uh, prospect of winning a prize. Something that's completely amazes me but <laughs> but it's very exciting <laughs> it is and i i should mention that the last two books you wrote uh and well released i should say are uh, uh, before the alamo but the latest one is the choice and for those uh who aren't familiar it's, it has nothing to do with roe v wade um but the choice <laughs> is uh is a wonderful historical novel and uh hopefully today we'll get a little more of a taste uh do you have an excerpt that you're going to read for us Yes, that's the idea, uh, to give people an idea of what's in the book and uh, the setting of the book and uh, the time uh, time span and all that. Uh, the whole title is The Choice, Jean de Sponde, Kingmaker. Uh, and it is uh, takes place during the time uh, in the 16th century, 1584, to about, uh, oh, 15. Well, actually, after his, it goes on after his death uh, to the death of the king in 1618, I believe it was. Uh, so uh, a lot of this time is it uh, is uh, contemporary with the reign of Elizabeth I of England. So that gives you probably an idea. And uh, I I compare the book to uh, uh, Wolf Hall uh, and. Uh, the works of uh, Hilary Mantel, uh, although I don't uh, think I'm as, uh, as uh, certainly celebrated an author as she is, but in any case, it's a similar similar time and similar concerns. But mine are in France instead of in England during the uh, wars of religion. France went to war over uh, Protestantism versus Catholicism. The Protestants were uh, Calvinist uh, Protestants, uh, Huguenots, they were called. 
and the two factions went to war over the spread of the new religion, which was brand new and frightening to Catholics. And also because of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, before this story begins, when thousands of Protestant leaders came to Paris for a peace conference. And instead of that, they were massacred. And at least 5,000 died. And some people think as many as 30,000, because not only were all the Protestants in uh, Paris killed, but but all the Protestants in surrounding towns. And so the war began, of course, uh, the Protestants, uh, in order to defend their very existence uh, against the Catholics. And uh, so this war is proceeding during the book. Now, Jean Despond is, of course, the hero of the book, one of them. The other hero is Henri de Navarre, the uh, the king of Navarre, uh, a pro- Protestant province of France in the south of France. Uh, it's now part of northern Spain, but in that time, France reached down that far. But going back to Jean Despond, he was of a noble family. His father was a minister to the king, to King Henri, uh, and uh, and Jean and his brother were protégés, and were their education was being funded by the king, and therefore uh, he was already familiar with the king. He probably had certainly been in, at court and had met him. Um, he was. He begins the scene. The whole book begins in Basel, Switzerland, where Jean is studying law. Uh, but he has many other interests, and one of them is alchemy, which, of course, uh, is the precursor to chemistry, but was looked upon as the devil's uh, the devil's business by uh, by Jean Calvin's John Calvin's successor Theodore de Bez. And since Jean uh, Despond is interested in and engaged in alchemy, he is, gets on the wrong side at Bez. And also, since Jean likes uh, to uh, to study the classics, that is, ancient Greece and Rome, and Bez thinks he should be studying the Bible instead. So uh, he f- uh, he actually flees from uh, from Basel, Switzerland, back home. And uh, he is called in to see the king. And Henri de Navarre uh, has been at the uh, at the uh, um, at Paris. He has been with the uh, court uh, as a prospective um, successor to the throne. But the problem is he is Protestant, as Navarre is a Protestant province completely. And so he cannot qualify to be uh, king of France unless he converts to Catholicism. And that is the choice that stands before him and between him and his – he is in the direct line. He's the only heir to the throne once – uh, King Henry III, and both of them named Henry. King Henry III, when he dies, then Henri de Navarre um, is the uh, heir to the throne. Okay, so as this uh, as this uh, segment opens, 
Jean is freshly back from Basel, and he's speaking to his girlfriend, Anne. And he's telling her uh, what happened. He's just coming back from the court for a visit to his family. And he says, Navarre, by the way, Henri, in order to con- not to confuse everything, I uh, throughout the book I call Henri de Navarre simply Navarre. Uh, and I can call him a king, King uh, Henri III of France. I call him Henri III. Uh, and uh, ultimately, uh, the King of Navarre does become Henri, uh, Henri IV, in other words, Henry IV. So, anyway, back to the story. Navarre, he says, Navarre simply keeps me overnight to go hunting with him next day. Uh, kept simply kept me overnight to go hunting with him the next day, and then he asked me to stay. He'd heard all about my doings in Basel straight from Theodore de Bez himself, who denounced me to him in a letter. King Henri thought very little of it, didn't seem to take it seriously. And this is Navarre, thought very little of it. He asked me more details about my studies and my life. So he got a balanced picture, my side and Bez's. But he needs me for something. I'm not clear what. And he's having me learn sword play and improving my marksmanship with a pistol. He has taken me out hunting with him just about every day. And for the moment, anyway, I'm his favorite partner at tennis. Now, a footnote here. Tennis was a French game, a French invention, and it moved over to England as a favorite game also. Uh, it was actually, in France, it was called Jeu de Paume. But um, when you start your first serve, or I think any serve, uh, you said tennis. And the English picked that up and called it called the game tennis after that. And that name, the old French name for it. So, to go back to the story, I'm his favorite partner at tennis. It's thanks to you, in part, that I'm a worthy opponent for him. Anne gave a hoot of delighted laughter. But what do you think he needs you for? He says, it is for my legal knowledge and my learning, but I have uh, have a suspicion it's, a, I'm, it's about to... No, it's to be sent to one of the foreign countries and eventually to fight. He's looking for trusty, literate men to speak for him in Germany, Switzerland, England, and maybe even up north in Denmark and Sweden. He told me the royal house in Paris is spreading all kinds of rumors about how debauched his court is. They should talk. He needs to set the record straight. So you see... Uh, listening audience that uh, disinformation was uh, uh, also used in the 16th century uh, probably straight through in all of human history so between this conversation between Jean de Sponde and his uh, girlfriend Anne three years pass and in the meantime not only does Jean become adept at swordsmanship and marksmanship uh, he also He's also, also always been good at right? Everybody was back then. Uh, he has gone to uh, Germany and Switzerland and Italy, uh, but uh, to the first two countries, raise an army 
to uh, help the king of the fight against the Catholics who were trying to kill off all the Protestants. Uh, so um, he has accomplished that. And France, uh, sorry, and uh, uh, Switzerland and Germany have, have promised these troops that are on at the ready uh, whenever the king will call them, whenever, uh, whenever uh, Navarre calls them. Okay, so now he is narrating uh, the next, uh, after three years, what's happening. The king was preparing to ride out and take the offensive. He began capturing small towns near La Rochelle and sending a message to the Duc de Casimiro to gather together the promised army contingents from the courts of Germany and Switzerland. The Duke was to mobilize that army and cut across the midsection of France. Navarre intended to join those forces, then carry the war northwards. This time, I was not chosen to carry the message, instead retained as a knight in Navarre's cavalry. I was involved in a number of minor battles, and although I did not personally engage an enemy, Henri did, always leading, leading us reckless, placing himself in great danger at times, and displaying amazing stamina and endurance. But the Duc de Joyeuse, under orders from Henri III, Henry III, to prevent Navarre from joining the advancing Germans and Swiss, led his army south into Guienne. We attempted to slip across its front to join our allies by traveling southeast, but were forced to confront Joyeuse's greatly superior forces on the 19th of October, 1587, at Coutras a few miles northeast of Bordeaux. We moved as fast as possible with such a mass of men and horses, 4,000 foot and 1,200 cavalrymen, including me, and our army located three, uh, I'm sorry, and our army boasted for, uh, three artillery pieces drawn ahead of us by teams of draft horses. We found ourselves in marshy country where the Isle and the Drone River, rivers flow together before they cast their waters into the great Atlantic estuary of the Gironde to the south and west. Our artillery was already some 1,500 yards ahead of the main body of the army and was crossing the Isle River to the south, while the rest of us were still making our way through the Drone River at Sinac Ford. I was riding close to the knot of men that always surrounded Navarre when I noticed a flurry of activity. Someone, a scout it appeared, had just ridden in from the northeast, shouting and pointing behind him in the direction from which he had come. I maneuvered my horse as close as possible. Sire, sire, the Duc de Joyeuse and his army are camped just north of here. They're at La Rochelle Chalet. That's only two hours' ride from this very spot, Sire. They'll be on us by daylight. They outnumber us, Sire. They have 2,000 horse and maybe 5,500 5, foot soldiers. He and his horse stood trembling and panting after their long run, sweat running off both of them. The commanders retreated at once, shouting and waving their arms. Most advised that we flee southward across the Isle River in the direction of Bergerac. 
while he sat silent in the midst of the tumult, only half listening to what his officers were saying. When he began to speak, he dominated the rest with his energy and decisiveness. If we run, we'll be strung out in the middle of a bog in total disorder, and Joyeuse can cut us down at will. We'll make a stand, and we'll make it here. Before it gets totally dark, we must scout this ground. You, Turenne, go tell those men hauling the can cannons to turn around and get back on this side of the Isle River. Soissons, La Tremoille, Condé, come with me. I followed the king's party, scouting the irregular tri triangle of land at the uh, confluence of the two rivers. The triangle stretched roughly east and west, its apex pointing in the direction of the Atlantic some miles distant. On the north side was a knoll that someone told us was called Wolves Butte, overlooking the Drone River. The knoll was cut off from the Drone to the north by a deep little stream, the Palar, and by a treacherous bog. South of the knoll, occupying the middle of the triangle, 500 yards of open ground sloped slightly down from the knoll. South of that, hide, hiding the bank of the Isle River, rose a thick forest. By now, darkness had fallen. Henri gave orders for the soldiers to rest for a couple of hours as soon as they were completely across the drawn and could uh, group themselves on the, that dry, sloping stretch of ground between the knoll and the woods. In the distance, I could hear commotion coming from the direction of the aisle, shouts and curses, screams and neighs of horses. It seemed that the cannons had become mired in the mud, and the horses were unable to pull them back to the south shore. The struggle to get the cannon back across the river and hauled upon the knoll lasted most of the night, and it was full daylight before they were cleaned and in place, ready to fire upon the, upon the enemy. Meanwhile, Ali and his commanders drew up the plan of battle. With the cannon to the far left dominating the high ground, the five commanders would group their cavalry in squadrons six deep with a front of about 50, and between each squadron would be a troop of arquebus soldiers. The remaining infantry would be hidden in the woods to the extreme right. We picketed our horses and wrapping ourselves in our capes, lay upon our saddle blankets, our heads pillowed on our saddles, for a short and fitful rest. As the first streaks of dawn lightened the sky, we began to hear the opposing enemy approaching from the north. Since they had come straight down the bank of the Drone, they had not been forced to contend with river crossings and were no, and were no doubt in fresher condition than we were. They came on quite deliberately at a steady march, apparently confident that their superior numbers would carry the day. Despite the extreme difficulty we had suffered in rescuing and placing our artillery, all was ready long before the enemy was arrayed for battle. We watched them deploying their cavalry and their infantry a hundred yards in front and below us. Henri murmured in surprise to see Joyeuse arrange his, his splendid cavalry of 2,000 horse in a long line only two deep with the infantry on either end. 
he thinks to develop to envelop our horsemen with his superior numbers but by the grace of god we'll break through his lines and attack his cavalry from the rear we could see that Joyeuse's canyon cannon were deployed to the left of their army across from the forest where our infantry were hidden the guns were not pointed in that direction instead at us the cavalry I had never faced cannon before and was horrified at the prospect, but tried to keep my terror to myself. The commanders seemed to be almost blasé about the, the cannon, the cannonballs. I was in Turin's squadron. He positioned his horse foot uh, front and center of us to speak. If one of those balls hits you, you're dead, very dead. But there isn't much chance of being hit. There are too few. Just ignore them. Concentrate on the enemy cavalry. That's where the real danger lies. Navarre shouted a command, and our cannon began to fire down upon the mass of infantry on Joyeuse's right side. My own trepidation increased as I watched the havoc we were wrecking upon those helpless men who were being mown down several at a time. Seeing this, Joyeuse gave the command for a general advance, and we rode down the slope to meet the, uh, to meet the army, singing our Huguenot battle, battle hymn. La voici l'heureuse journée que Dieu a faite à plein désir. The happy day has come that God has made at his pleasure. I considered the words at best ironic, but it did help to release some of the tension to bellow at the top of our lungs. La Tremouille's rather scanty squadron on our immediate right took the first shock of the enemy advance with an exchange of pistol shots then a clash of sabers. The captain on the opposite, on the opposing side, Jean de Beaumanoir, as I was later told, cantered toward our lines, shouting encouragement over his shoulder. His men thundered close on his heels. They crashed into La Tremoy's lines, fighting with such enthusiasm that our people were overwhelmed. Some were cut down on the spot. Some fled toward the west, only to be cornered and killed. Many galloped to join our our unit or Condé's on our left, but I had scant time to observe the overall for, fortunes of the battle. I had fired my two pistols, ineffectually as far as I could see, and without having been hit by any of the shots from the other side. I was now wielding my sword as best I could, thanking God for all those lessons over the past three years. Luck, or the grace of God, was with me, for my first fight ended abruptly when my opponent's horse stepped in a hole and my sword, aimed at my enemy's chest, pierced his throat instead. The impetus of the charge carried me past him, and I didn't see what happened to him. A tall knight with long reach immediately attacked, a far better swordsman than I. It was all I could do to parry his blows, one of which gashed my thigh. I felt little more than the initial pressure of the blade, for my mind was elsewhere, and my heart pumped so fast I feared it might burst. I could hardly catch my breath, my, excite my excitement and fear overwhelming. me. I made a thrust at my opponent that caused him to veer his horse from my path, 
right into the sword of the man next to me who dispatched him from the side before my adversary was aware he was in danger from that quarter. I glanced down at my leg and saw that blood had soaked my breeches and was dripping off the sole of my boot. That single glance almost cost me my life. I looked up to see a knight with blood-smeared face from a head wound bearing down upon me, thrusting straight at my heart. I twisted in the saddle and made a counter-thrust that, as luck would have it, not my skill, pierced his chest. I jerked my sword out of his flesh, and he clapped his left hand over the, the wound, dropping his horse's reins. But meanwhile, his sword had slipped between my leather jerkin and my chest when I twisted to the side, and as he fell from his horse, his death grip on his sword dragged me off balance. I caught his wrist to lessen the pressure on my chest, trying to prevent the side of the blade from cutting me further, but I couldn't prevent the fall from my own horse. Both horses plunged forward, riderless, while the Catholic soldier and I landed in a heap on the ground. By that time, he had let go the sword, which I pulled free of my clothing, my breast just above the left nipple stinging from a superficial cut. The horses and knights engaged in heavy hand-to-hand -hand fighting had moved a few feet northward, leaving us in relative quiet. My enemy lay gasping at my side. I turned to him, and for the first time focused upon his bloody face. I knew him. With the tail of my shirt, I wiped the blood away, smoothing his sticky hair back from his brow. I cried out, Oh, God in heaven, it's Philippe Baudin. Philippe, forgive me. It was the young man I had known and liked and admired so much at Toulouse the man who had advocated tolerance and who had even discussed the possibility of a universal religion. I was overcome with grief and regret, tears flooding my eyes. I prayed aloud, Dear God, please, please don't let him die. Philippe opened his eyes and focused on me, me too, for the first time. Jean de Sponde, I knew your voice. Sorry to meet you again under such circumstances. His attempt at a grin ended in a grimace. There's no priest here, Jean, so you must be my priest. Hear my confession. Of course, my friend, anything. He waited no longer, but began a quick confession of the sins that seemed to bother him most, none of them mortal. When he had finished, I spoke the words I knew would matter to most to him. Ego te absolvo in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. That was what he had wanted to hear. He squeezed my hand, nodding his thanks. The priest will administer the last rites when they find me. Tears were running down my face. God forgive me, I groaned. Philippe looked at me for the one last moment. I forgive you, Jean. The light went out of his eyes, and the color left his face as his head fell back, and a bubble of blood frothed out of his mouth, burst, and crept down the side of his cheek. I had been supporting his upper body, and its weight increased, dragging on my arms. I crouched there, rocking him, while the battle screamed and crashed, though receding minute by minute. 
Turin's horsemen were fleeing back northward toward and toward, you know, it should be La, La Joyeuse's horsemen were fleeing back northward toward La Rochelle, and the sound of further engagements became dimmer as the distance increased. At last, there were no more shots. The only sounds in my immediate vicinity, a few muffled groans. We had routed a larger and better equipped army. The Battle of Coutras would forever be celebrated as the first of Henri de Navarre's great triumphs. I was far removed from thoughts of glory, sunk in misery and guilt over having killed someone, and not just anyone, but one of my best friends. At last I felt a hand on my shoulder. Jean, is this the first time you've killed a man? It was Henri's voice. I looked up at my king, blinking away tears. No, sire. I paused and cleared my throat, <clears> then <throat> continued in a less shaky voice. I think I killed another horseman just before, though I don't. I, I didn't wait to watch him die. But this was Philippe Baudin, my friend. I've killed my friend, your majesty. May God pardon me. I bowed my head to hide my fresh tears. His hand still grasped my shoulder. This is war, Jean. There's nothing pretty, nothing heroic in it, unless it be an act of mercy. If you hadn't killed your friend, he would have killed you, I don't doubt. True, sire, because we didn't recognize each other. But how monstrous that two friends can try to kill one another. Yes, and brothers kill brothers, sons their fathers. If I can find a way to stop it, I shall. His face appeared severe, almost angry. Come, Jean. He lifted me to my feet, and together we started in search of my horse. My wounded leg had stiffened while I crouched there with Philippe, and I limped badly when I put weight on it. New blood began to flow as I stretched the cut tissue. Ah, I didn't see you, that you were wounded. He stopped, supporting me with his arm. When did that happen? After I killed the first man, Seal. The second was about to kill me, a much better fighter, and when I didn't parry one of his thrusts just right, he gashed my thigh. But one of our men stabbed him from the side. Then I fought Philippe. I see. Well, you certainly did your duty, and those lessons in swordplay stood you in good stead, just as I knew they would. He was busy tearing a long piece of cloth from the lining of his cloak, which he now tied snugly around my thigh. This will keep the lips of the wound together, so it won't bleed so much. And that is the end of this selection. Wow. I mean, it, it, to me, it's uh, it, it's as powerful as you can get. And I, I love the last uh, uh, segment that you read, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I'd say about a month ago as... Uh, as the book was about to be released, and it, I thought that was powerful writing. The details that you that you get into, and I, I mean each and every uh, breath that's taken, every uh, every breath out of a body uh, into a body that uh, that comes there is just uh, it, it goes through me like a knife. And I guess that's what you you're supposed to do as a writer. I just can't imagine, and I'm someone who's written eight books, but certainly nothing like this. Uh, all different types of books, but not, not quite this. And I just, I, 
I can't get over the skill, and I'm not just saying this because you're on, the skill that it takes to uh, to get that across, the emotions uh, across, and to make me feel every step of the way that I'm walking through it. I'm going through this experience myself. And that's what mm-hmm. writers do. Good. I mean, that's that, that's something I, I don't know if it's if it's something that came to you at an early age as you started writing. Did you learn to do that more? Um, do you learn to do that by reading? Um, yes, I uh, actually I uh, I started reading at the age of four because my mother was obliged to take me to school with her. She was the teacher. And she didn't trust anyone to babysit me uh, because uh, they were teaching in a hostile environment, my my parents. Uh, but in any case, uh, I, uh, she sat me in the corner with crayons and paper at, while she taught first grade. And uh, I just learned everything that she was teaching, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and so I surprised her by uh, reading reading a, a highway sign as we passed by it on our way to El Paso one time. And so she realized, oh, my goodness, uh, <laughs> my four-year-old has, has absorbed everything I was teaching. So anyway, I started reading then, and I read everything I could get my hands on from then on. And I'm sure uh, that that taught me a whole lot about style and, uh, and how to manipulate people's feelings and all the rest of it. Uh, but I did not write anything creative until after I retired from uh, uh, from Trinity University here in San Antonio. Uh, then I wrote my first book, which was about uh, the arrival of three missions that were driven out of East Texas by the French and the Indians, uh, and was what happened while they were crossing the wilderness and and what happened afterwards. And so that was my first novel. And uh, then I continued writing novels, one one after the other, because uh, I had always wanted to do that. And at last I was free to do so in my retirement. And so uh, I'm still working on that. Just congratulations on all of that. Um, you know, just, just wonderful. And let me ask you, I've, I've asked this to so many people that have that have written, especially folks that work in, the, in a visual medium, and I know that's not your your field, but uh, actors and directors, when they write their their novel or maybe their first novel, I say, is it impossible to write without visualizing it on the screen, either big screen or small screen? I'm going to ask you the same thing. Uh, are you are you visualizing these people, these individuals? Uh, as if it's a movie, as it's a, as if it's a real life uh, going on. Um, yes, yes. Well, I I don't uh, I don't visualize them on a screen. I, I visualize them in real life, and I see them. Uh, uh, and of course, as I see them, I see them in action and going from, let's say, from the fireplace to a table and sitting down and inviting someone else to sit and what kind of chairs they're in and all the rest. Uh, And uh, so uh, it's a world that the author creates. That is, if the author is uh, is, uh, descriptive and uh, creating fiction or even even, uh, people who are writing history. 
uh, will do that, uh, some of them. Uh, the ones who are interesting will do that. The ones who are just doing uh, dates, uh, events and dates uh, are, uh, are boring. And uh, so when I taught history along with literature, uh, I always made, made it as interesting as I could without compromising the facts. Uh, and, uh, and I still am doing the same thing, more or less. Uh, but I am putting in, in a case like this book, uh, this Jean Despond book, um, the details of his life are not known. The uh, big strokes of his life are uh, known, and of course that was my uh, my armature, my skeleton on which I hung all the details, the human details of conversations and emotions and so forth. Well, Doc, uh, congratulations once again on a wonderful book. And everyone out there, the name of the book is The Choice. It's a must-get, and uh, as are all the, all the books. But get this book first and foremost. And, uh, Doc, you want to leave us with anything else before we, uh, before we take off? And I want to go hopefully receive an award for you tonight. And I'll call you. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, uh, the, the, Dr. Weinberg is in. San Antonio, Texas. I'm on Long Island, New York, and um, and, and hopefully I'll be receiving an award, uh, first, second, third. But boy, it would be nice to uh, nice to get any award for uh, for to recognize the work that you've done on on uh, on radio and uh, in the podcast world. This one in particular is a radio award, so uh, it'll be my honor to accept this honor uh, if if we're to so win it. But um, I have a good feeling and. Doc, anything you want to leave us with? I just want to say that uh, uh, Henri de Navarre turned out to be the greatest king France ever had because he stopped the wars of religion, just as he said he was going to, as I read the, the segment to you. Uh, and uh, he uh, he uh, signed the Edict of Nantes, which stopped the war and promulgated tolerance over uh, over all of France for both religions, uh, and but of course he was assassinated in due course <laughs> by a fanatic Catholic in 1618. So he did not get to uh, live out his his reign. He wasn't very old when he was murdered. Uh, but what I wanted to uh, to show as I as I presented him in this segment was that he was merciful and kind and also very wise what he had to say about war and the horrors of war uh, and uh, that there's nothing heroic and glorious about it it's it's a terribly grim business uh, and we are in a sort of war right now in this country with mass shootings of totally helpless and innocent people uh, and I'm just hoping and praying that uh, that uh, the uh, federal government can do something about it. The state of Texas should do something about it, but I, I know that there is absolutely no chance of that as long as uh, our present uh, regime is in power. Anyway, that's all I have to say. <laughs> on that note, on that note, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg has been the voice you've been hearing, and Frank McKay signing off and good luck to her tonight. You've been listening to uh, to our show. Binge listen to everything else that we've done in the past. And we'll see you all next time on the Florence Weinberg Show. <laughs>